from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Villages were locked down so no food could come in. Um, Activist groups were sent into homes so each bit of food could be removed using metal rods plunged into beds and ripping apart chimneys to find anything that could be hidden just so they had no food. So Stalin was forcing them to collectivize, which which was also happening in Russia Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. But this was more than just wanting to make everybody's property the property of the state. Right. So it started out with that. He he wanted to collectivize. And as you see today on the news, Ukrainians are fiercely independent and resistant and and they weren't having it. Yeah, when I wrote this initially, I I put a lot of emotional parallels in between the two storylines. And now I'm seeing a lot of actual parallels. I'm Sarah Fenske. Aaron Lidikin's debut novel is called The Memory Keeper of Kiev. Now, the capital city in that title may be familiar to you from listening to the international news or watching CNN. The world's eyes have been on Ukraine in recent months. And that proved good timing for a first-time author, one who began writing this story long before most Americans gave Ukraine a second thought. Aaron Lidikin actually worked a decade on this book, drawing on family stories and extensive research to depict picked a world far from her home in Troy, Illinois. And she joins us today with more. Erin Lidikin, welcome. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on this release. This must feel like such a big moment after 10 years of writing. Yeah, it's definitely been a long road to get here. Um, but I think that's not that uncommon for a lot of writers. So yeah, I mean, when you first set out to write this novel, What was the concept? Is it what this ended up being today? Yes. I always wanted to tell the story of the Holodomor, and I always wanted to link it to a more current timeline to kind of show that connection we all have to the past. I think that's something we far too often forget. And I think it's really important in life to remember where we came from, what happened before us. We can learn so much from that. So you used a word there that I bet is not familiar to a lot of our listeners, the Holodomor. Tell us what this is. Holodomor translates into death by hunger, and that's exactly what it was. It was a man-made terror famine that Stalin implemented in Ukraine in 1932 and 1933 that killed roughly 4 million Ukrainians. And that was a huge percentage of this country. Yes, uh, almost 13 percent of Ukraine Ukrainian people died during the Holodomor. And it was so interesting to read this book. Um, You dig into what caused this. This was not a naturally occurring phenomenon. Right. There was no bug infestation. There was no bad weather. It was was man-made. It was intentional. And that was what was so shocking uh, the more I researched the depth and the, of, of what they went through to make this happen. Um, it was directed to the Ukrainian people. It was, and it did affect others, but the Ukrainian people had different sets of rules that were implemented for them, such as the borders were closed, villages were locked down so no food could come in, um, activist groups were sent into homes so each bit of food could be removed using metal rods plunged into beds and ripping apart chimneys to find anything that could be hidden just so they had no food. And they did all this to break down the Ukrainian people. Yeah, I mean, so Stalin was forcing them to collectivize, which which was also happening in Russia Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. But this was more than just wanting to make everybody's property the property of the state. Right. So it started out with that. He he wanted to collectivize. And as you see today on the news, Ukrainians are fiercely independent and resistant. And and they weren't having it. They, They did not want to collectivize. And they fought back. And 
the Holodomor was the result of us Stalin saying, well, no, if you're not going to comply, then we're going to do this. And so he basically wanted to crush this country exactly. by starving it to death. Exactly. Exactly. So in this book, and I don't want to give people the wrong impression of this book. This book is a wonderful love story. Um, there's actually several different love stories going on. Uh, there's things happening in Ukraine and in the 1930s. We're also in Illinois in the early aughts. Um, but we do learn about Stalin through the experiences of this family. And there are a couple references in this book as the, the more modern characters are sort of learning about this past to the New York Times coverage of what was happening. Yeah. I got the sense this was something that you looked back on with some righteous anger. Yeah, absolutely. Walter Duranty won a Pulitzer Prize for his work. He he was stationed in Moscow and covered the government and the collectivization process. And he was, you know, he was getting favors from the government. He was living in a nice apartment. He had a really a cush life. And he probably also feared for some things, I mean, with the Soviet government, but he denied the famine. Even when uh, Gareth Jones was another journalist who, who managed to go into Ukraine and report on what was happening, tell the truth, and everybody looked to like, is, do we believe this? What's going on? And Walter Duranty came out and said, it's fine. Nothing's really happening. That's bad. I think one of the quotes was, they're hungry, but they're not starving. And so the world was like, okay, we'll just, we'll go with it. And I think a lot of governments did know what was going on, but it was overlooked on that end too, because, you know, Hitler was coming to power. There was issues with Japan. We were on the cusp of a lot of things in World War II, obviously. And so we needed to build those diplomatic relations with the USSR. And so even our own government was like, well, just look the other way and uh, we'll pretend nothing's happening. So Ukraine was a scapegoat back then and they were sacrificed in a way. Erin, it, it's so interesting to hear you discuss this history because I'm just feeling some resonance <laughs> to <laughs> some moments. And, yeah, it's pretty wild. Is, it wasn't intentional no. when you went into this, but now that you see what's unfolding today in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's got to be somewhat strange thinking about how this has all come to a head all over again. Yeah, yeah. When I wrote this initially, I, I put a lot of emotional parallels in between the two storylines, and now I'm seeing a lot of actual parallels in what's happened then and what's happening now, and it's, it's really horrifying. It is horrifying. I mean, it's great timing for you as an author. Mm -hmm. And yet this isn't just something that you're approaching academically or you're approaching career wise. This is very personal to you because this is your family story. Right. So this is, yeah, my great grandparents came from Ukraine. My grandfather was born there. They immigrated. uh, They left during World War II and immigrated to America in 1950 after years in DP camps, displaced persons camps. Um, they didn't experience the Holodomor. They lived in an area that wasn't affected by it, thankfully. We were very fortunate with that. But they did bear witness to it. And it's a part of Ukrainian history that all Ukrainians are aware of and familiar with. So it's it's vital. But not many people outside know about it. A lot of people I've talked about in my book, they're, they're shocked. They're like, I had never heard of this. I wasn't taught this in school. And it was because it was covered up. The Soviet government did not let word of this come out. Anywhere. I mean, if you talked about it, you were arrested. If uh, they, he, he actually, Stalin took the census, the 1937 census that showed that, you know, these massive amounts of deaths, and he got rid of it, killed the head of the Census Bureau, killed some of the other people, arrested some of the census workers, ordered a new census that had better numbers that worked for what he liked, and then put that out there. So, I mean, there was a huge cover up Soviet propaganda. And, you know, we're seeing propaganda machine at work today in Russia as well. So it's. 
yeah, it was hidden. And it's, it's such an extreme version of fake news. Like you kill the head of the census, yeah, but that's yeah. Stalin. You right. Know? I mean, it happened. It's wild, but it happened. Yeah. So your family was fortunate enough not to deal uh, with the Holodomor. Mm-hmm. Like this, this wasn't something where they were starving to death during this period. Right. However, you really do draw on their stories in telling this story. There were so many pieces of this that I was reading and I was thinking, I wonder if this happened to Aaron's family. And then I get to the, the afterword where you kind of explain some things. Yeah. Some of these personal details are, they're all true. Yes, yes. I put a lot of my myself and my family in this book where I could because, you know, the traditions, the the connections, um, different family relationships, it's all, yeah, like a lot of the, the modern storyline, there's a little girl character and a lot of her interactions with the great-grandmother character are, are what I remember with my great-grandmother. With my, she lived with us when I was a kid, my Ukrainian great-grandmother. And so I spent a ton of time with her. And, you know, it was so cathartic to write those memories and those stories and put them out there for her. It was just very... It was special to me. So the little girl in this book, she calls the grandmother that lives with her Bobby. Mm-hmm. Is that something you called your grandmother? Yes, we, we did call her Bobby. Usually it's Baba or Babusia is the Ukrainian. Um, but for some reason, we did Bobby, and that's just what it was. So And so you were basically able to tell your Bobby's story. Obviously, you know, many differences in mm-hmm. terms of what happens in Ukraine. But so much of this draws on her story. Bobby, in The Memory Keeper of Kiev, this book, she never wants to talk to her family about mm-hmm. the past. She's very adamant that this is something that they have to look forward, find a way to be to be positive and optimistic. Was your grandmother that way? So she she would talk about some things, but there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot she didn't talk about. So yeah, I think she cherry-picked some things to tell me because they're so book 2 will be a lot more based on my family's story, like their journey from Ukraine. And you know, there's some fascinating stories that I have there that that's how it got me started into looking into Ukraine's history. Like I wanted to see how that story fit into the true narrative of Ukrainian history. And so it was, it was exploring that that led me to the Holodomor too. But um, yeah, it's all, it's all interconnected and it's all a part of it. And, and so, you know, the grandmother in this book, um, in addition to not wanting to talk at all about the past, she also has some behaviors that are clearly trauma-inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, she's hiding food. It makes sense that somebody who would have come out of a famine, they're, they're burying food in the backyard or hiding it in spots because they don't want the soldiers to come take it. Um, also very worried about what happens if the police give a call. And mm-hmm. I understand this is also drawn on your grandmother. Yeah, that actually happened. She, you know, police telemarketers call and ask for money. And she, my mom told me the story. She was with her and my grandmother was like, yeah, okay, I'll give you money. Let me get let me get my card. And my mom's like, whoa, what are you doing? You don't have to give them money. She said, yes, you do. You give them money or they will put your name on a list or they will come for you in the night. And my mom's like, you are in America now. You don't have to worry about that. But she's like, I don't think she believed me. I, I think she still gave them money when I wasn't around. But there's just this, this deep-seated trauma. And, and that fascinates me too, like how that stays with you after all those years. I mean, this was, you know, 30, 40 years later. And she still had that mentality because... While they didn't suffer under the Holodomor, they did live under the Soviet regime. They did live under the Nazi regime. And then they fled the incoming Soviet regime again, you know, because they didn't want to live like that again. And so, but it stays with you. It stays with you. And it echoes through the generations. 
We're talking today to Erin Lidekin. She has just published her first novel. This is The Memory Keeper of Kiev. It's a wonderful story. It weaves together what happened in Ukraine in the 1930s uh, with a modern story set in early aughts, Illinois. Uh, and Erin, I understand the Illinois setting. This must also draw on your life, even though these details, I'm sure, are not 100% you. Um, this family is living in, I don't think they ever precisely explain where in Illinois, but you were both born and now you're living in Illinois. Yes. Yes, it was a familiar setting, and so there's definitely shades of me there for sure. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Myself. Well, I live in Troy, Illinois. I have two teenagers, which is shocking to me now that they're that old, and a husband and a bunch of pets, and we just live out in a suburb near St. Louis. So. And so you studied history in college. Mm-hmm. Um, did you go into this thinking, I want to write historical fiction? I've always loved history, and I've always loved historical fiction ever since I was a kid. And so it was always in the back of my mind, and especially hearing these family stories as I grew up and started researching, I thought, man, it would be really neat to write a novel about this. Um, So it was always something I dreamed about, but whether I could make it happen or not was the question. And that's um, that's why I took me a while, I think, because, you know, initially it's like a little hobby on the side. I'll try it. I'll play with it. I'll see what happens. Um, and, and then I'm, you're raising two kids. Right. I mean, that too. At right. The same time. Working, you know, living life like everybody else. And so, yeah, it definitely was something that I had to squeeze in when I could. So this, you know, the 10 years that you're kind of picking away or mm-hmm. chipping away is, is a better yeah. phrase, chipping away at this novel. Were you also working then full time on, on top of the part time, part time, part time. Okay. And then, yeah, with having two kids. Yeah. So and you had not gone to one of these like fancy writers colleges like you you don't have the formal training just in novel writing. No, no. I have a degree in history from SAUE and a minor in English, which I took a creative writing class there, but it was nothing special or fancy there. No. So how do you go about knowing you know you have a good story? You know you have this idea of how you want it, it to intersect, but you have limited time to write and you haven't been trained in like the structure of a novel. How do you even begin to get to something that is just, you know, these two intricately woven stories where, you know, the, the suspense builds and, and we want to know what's going to happen. It's a, it's real art here. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a process, but luckily there are so many different workshops and uh, groups out there where you you can take classes online and, and talk to other writers and get critiques. And I used, I utilized a lot of that. And did you get to a point, you know, as you're continuing in your writing process where you almost gave up? Oh, absolutely. Several times over that I would put this away and say, this is never happening. I'm done. But then it, it, I would always come back to it because it was such an important story to me. It felt so personal that I, I had to come back to it. And I never gave up on it in so, the long run. What kind of got you over the hump where you were like, okay, you know, I've been chipping away at this, but now I see the light. Like mm-hmm. I'm standing at the top of the mountain. There's the promised land. <laughs> I feel like that happened several times. And then I'd get knocked back down off it again, like get another rejection or you know something would happen and then something great would come along like oh we like it we'll do a revise and resubmit so fix these things and send it back and you know I'd get all excited again and do it again and then oh it was close but not quite so it just it was a cycle of that until finally my agent um saw it and she was like yes let's do this I believe in this story and we went forward from there and so she got really these final steps she's the one who helped push this over Mm -hmm. the finish line well what's crazy is for all the sort of trial and error and and it sounds like not everybody bit on this at the moments that they could have yeah absolutely Uh, but this is already taking off in a huge way I mean this book is just being released right now this month May it came out May 16th May 16th and I mean you have like a slew of great reviews 
on Goodreads, you have some blurbs from some people who are huge in historical fiction. I think any reader of historical fiction will tell you if you get a blurb from from these key people, this is kind of like the stamp you need. You must have realized at some point, wow, it's not just that my novel's being published. This novel's actually going to be read. Yeah, that was um, it was amazing to get those those blurbs from like uh, you know Kate Quinn, Christy Lefteri. Those uh, yeah, I can't even begin to tell you how exciting that was. Probably like one of the highlights of my life, honestly. So and in addition to that, it's not just going to be read in English. Yeah, we were slated to be translated now in thirteen additional languages. And is this typical, like for a first-time novel? I have to say, this is not generally what I hear from first-time authors sitting in, in my chair. Yeah, I don't know that it's that typical. I mean, I, I think it does happen a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's my first time, so. <laughs> what do you think is driving the fact that so, people in so many different tongues around the world are excited about getting this book to people? Well, I think the world's eyes are on Ukraine, and people are struggling to understand the history there. And and people look back and say, oh, it all began at the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, no, it's far deeper. It goes back so much for I mean hundreds and hundreds of years Ukraine and Russia have been at odds over this land so this is not a new story we're just seeing it happen again and I think people want to understand that and will this book be published in a language where people are going to be able to read it in Eastern Europe well we have Poland um Poland might be the furthest east we've gone so far. Someday I'd love for Ukraine, but I'm, they're yeah. a little busy right now, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see. a lot going on. Well, that's huge, and you're already planning the second book. Yes. Was that always part of the plan? You wanted to do one and then just dive right back well, in? Well, book, book two is actually always going to be book one until I came upon the Holodomor. So now I'm kind of going back to that original thought I had for writing my more of my family's story. And so, so this will be more of a World War II or post-World War II setting. Yes, and it, I think it'll be relevant because we're, I'm going to be hitting on the refugee crisis a lot. My family spent three or four years in displaced persons camps. And we're seeing that crisis going to be happening right now as all these Ukrainians are fleeing their homeland. So as you're talking about that family history, I understand it was your great uncle who was really critical in understanding the parts of this that you've been able to untangle so far. Yes, he was. He's been amazing. Like, thank goodness for FaceTime because he lives in Croatia. So we've reconnected over the last couple of years. And, you know, he's 87 years old, but we FaceTime a couple times a month and chat. And, and he's wonderful. The stories, he, he fills in so many holes on our family history and for Ukrainian culture and just everything. He's been fantastic. And so has he been able to read this book yet? I sent him a copy, so it is en route to him. It's en so. route to Croatia. Yes. Yes. Is there a little bit of a holding your breath? I oh, mean, yeah. this person has been so <laughs> key to this. If you get some little detail wrong, is he the kind of person who will tell you? Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, he'll be, he'll be nice about it. He told me, I'll have opinions, but I'll I'll keep them to myself if I don't want to tell you. So it's fine. He's, he's wonderful, but he's just blunt. So I I appreciate that. That is a great relative. Like yes. you need the person to give you the guidance and mm-hmm. then, you know, they know when to speak and when to hold their tongue. <laughs> yeah. Well, this book is is just, it's such a wonderful book. I think if anybody likes historic fiction, you're going to love this book. This is The Memory Keeper of Kiev. That's by Aaron Lidikin. We have a link on our website if you want to get your own copy. And Aaron, you explore such real history here. And this is history that is so relevant today. What would you want to leave people with as they're contemplating what we've talked about today and, and just what's happening in Ukraine? what happened in Ukraine? I just, you know, it's so important to know what has come before because history does repeat itself if we don't learn the lessons from it. And and clearly, we haven't learned the lessons from this instance with Russia and Ukraine. And now this is happening again. And there's so many parallels that we're looking at. And it's just, 
it's horrifying. So learn the history, learn how to make the world a better place. Don't let this type of thing happen again. Do you think your book could help do that for people who maybe aren't ready to sit down and read Anne Applebaum or some thick nonfiction book? This is a good entry. I, I hope that I made it accessible in that way, that it can be something that is a springboard for people to want to find out more. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled that my publisher has, has made it part of a, a donation. So every sale, uh, share of each proceed of the sale will go to uh, charities helping Ukraine. And so, and a couple other countries have followed suit too for translation purposes. And that's been really wonderful to see. So I hope I hope I can both shed a little light on something and give a little help to Ukraine. Well, Erin Lidekin, thank you so much for joining us and, and congratulations on this novel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.